Hey, CNFers. The CNF Podcast, Creative Nonfiction Podcast, is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts in Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for nonfiction. One another, here's another. CNF is also brought to you by Baypath University's MFA in Creative Nonfiction. Discover your story. Baypath is the first and only university to offer a new residency, fully accredited MFA focusing exclusively on creative nonfiction. Attend full or part-time from anywhere in the world. In the Baypath MFA, you'll find small online classes and a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master the techniques of good writing from acclaimed authors and editors, learn about publishing and teaching through professional internships, and complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation for your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, family histories, spiritual writing, and an optional week-long summer residency in Ireland with guest writers including Andre DeBuse III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August and January. Find out more at baypath.edu slash MFA. Dude, this podcast is so metal. That's right, CNFers. This is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast where I speak to badass artists about the craft of telling true stories. Today's guest is Eric Ducker, a freelance writer and editor who wrote a great profile on Jenny O'Dell for The Ringer. And she happens to be the author of How to Do Nothing. You might remember her from episode 151 of this very podcast. The link to Eric's story is in the show notes. The two episodes can, in a way, piggyback off each other. I highly recommend them. First, make sure you're subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts. My 39th birthday is right around the corner, and I'd love for us to hit 100. I think we're 34 away. So that's a great present if you ask me. You don't even have to put a bow on it. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, at CNFPod. Also on Instagram, at CNFPod, at Brendan O'Meara, of course. Facebook is Creative Nonfiction Podcast, or at Podcast. However you choose to search for it there. Keep the conversation going there. You know what? Just do it. And I'll hop in. I will jump in and give you digital fist bumps. So the other night, I was choosing which chef's table I wanted to watch. I settled on Jung Kwan, a South Korean Buddhist monk who cooks the temple food at her temple. 100% 100% vegan, and not only that, like 100% plants. Appeals to my vegan taste, for sure. But that's not the point. 
I was floored, categorically floored by the entire episode, but especially this little quote. And it's more like a somewhat of a, a small monologue, if you will. And I want to read it to you. I copied it word for word from the subtitles. It was like that meaningful and that good. So this is this is what it says. This is this is her her uh, her words by me reading it. Creativity and ego cannot go together. If you free yourself from the comparing and jealous mind, your creativity opens up endlessly. Just as water springs from a fountain, creativity springs from every moment. You must not be your own obstacle. You must not be owned by the environment you are in. You must own the environment, the phenomenal world around you. You must be able to freely move in and out of your mind. This is being free. There is no way you can't open up your creativity. There is no ego to speak of. That's my belief. So that's the great Jong Kwan, South Korean Buddhist monk who cooks delicious food at her temple and travels sometime around the world to lecture on vegetarian cooking and um, really enlighten people. It was uh, pretty special. I mean, let that sink in. How great is that? You should tee that episode up on Netflix. It could change your life. It's also directed by David Gelb, who, as many of you know, is the uh, director of my favorite documentary these days, of uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which I've seen like eight times. Hustling hard to try to get Gelb on this podcast because, especially after seeing that last Chef's Table, because uh, the the parallels between the two, uh, you can tell that there's a there's some themes that are that cross both movies, and you can tell that that's where a lot of his taste lies. And that would be great to talk to him about that. So anyway. This episode's Eric Ducker, and uh, after that wonderful quote, um, I'm not going to go tear into a riff after that, so let's just settle in for this conversation with Eric Ducker, episode 157. I hope you dig what we made for you. A fun place to start might be, if anybody uh, reads through your back catalog of dozens upon dozens upon dozens of stories, it seems like music is very, an influential part of your life, given that you're, you've written so extensively about it. So um, even as a, as a younger person, maybe in middle school or high school, like how important, um, if it was at all, how important was music to you growing up? Uh, it was pretty huge. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I had, my father is, is, and was a huge music fan. And, um, he was kind of one of those rare people who didn't kind of just stop listening to new music, you know, once he got out of college, you know, or yeah, I feel like, you know, even to today, a lot of people's kind of music taste gets stuck after, you know, the, wherever, like their early to late twenties, whatever they were listening to. Um, I mean, he still had those influences from the sixties and seventies and those records that I, I would listen to with him, but then he would always be listening to new music and kind of want to know about more stuff and new stuff. So, you know, like when I was in middle school, he was buying like Liz fair albums and, you know, uncle Tupelo, which were <laughs> cool bands at the time for a 40 year old or a 50 year old to be buying. Um, and then I also had an older brother who was really into music and he was, you know, this is the nineties. And, uh, you know, he was 
kind of obsessed with hip hop. And, uh, but yeah, I kind of took it all in. I was listening to all the stuff they liked, all the stuff that I kind of found on my own alternative rock, indie rock, dance music, kind of, kind of bringing it all in. So yeah, it was, it's been a huge part of my life. Yeah. Since probably I was even in elementary school. Wow. Like, so who, who are your, your go-to, uh, starting string bands, so to speak in, in the nineties? In the '90s, well, Beastie Boys were were kind of at the top of the list. Outkast from Atlanta were were pretty huge. I grew up in Oakland, California, mm-hmm. but um, for some reason, me and my friends really took a liking to Outkast. Um, this was kind of around the time that punk was kind. Of, you know, I, I guess I was kind of the alternative revolution kind of started. But when I was really in high school, it was like you know. Obviously, being in the Bay Area, there was Green Day and Rancid were huge. You know, but I was also listening to older stuff. I listened to a lot of Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. Public Enemy was huge for me. Um, I guess the band that really got me into music, I guess the two bands who got me, or groups that got me into really into music, kind of creating my identity when I was in the elementary school were Guns N' Roses and Public Enemy. So, Mm. yeah. Did you draw any artistic inspiration from those bands that would maybe later inform the the writing you do i guess i don't really think about it as consciously but Mm -hmm. i mean there's i think you know probably in the beastie boys and some of those other groups i mentioned was just kind of a cultural curiosity and uh not kind of being ultimately concerned with boundaries of genre and style and you know, kind of listening to music. I mean, it's a little hard to think about in this context or in kind of our present day where, but, you know, in the 90s, a lot of music listening was broken up among, you know, along racial lines. White kids listen to supposedly white music. Black kids listen to supposedly black music. And, you know, that's how music was marketed to them. That's how culture was marketed to them. And I guess from the start, I wasn't really interested in that. I wasn't, you know, I was interested in bands that are artists that didn't kind of always accept those kind of divisions and classifications. So, yeah, you know, that, that includes Beastie Boys, obviously, but also groups like Public Enemy who were into, you know, rock music and did, you know, were that's what they were sampling. That's what they were, you know, they they saw the power in that music, too. So, yeah, I think that was kind of I think that was a influence and just kind of being open-minded and digging into stuff and kind of getting into stuff that kind of taking a, a, your own kind of particular, peculiar take on things. Hmm. And uh, as you know, uh, becoming, becoming a a writer and a a journalist, it's a special kind of virus that infects you and, so at what point did you become sort of infected by the the writer bug? <laughs> uh I don't know if it was ever a clear infection point. Um <laughs> you know, I I my mother is a uh well when I was growing up she was a a professor at a graduate school. Um so, you know, even in writing essays and you know, class assignments, she would help me as an editor and showed me kind of the importance of editing. And the importance of, uh, you know, of writing as, as a communication tool. And so, you know, I kind of, I, you know, there, I, I also, I mean, I remember in elementary school, I had a fifth grade 
teacher. And, um, you know, every morning we started with creative writing. Like that's what we did for the first, I mean, I, I have to imagine it's 15, 20 minutes of class. We would just write, do creative writing, which was, you know, I think back about it, that's a pretty amazing talent or not talent. It's a, this is an amazing gift to give kids, uh, just to express themselves that way, right. Kind of the mm -hmm. start. And, you know, we would, we would go around the room and if we want to read, you could read your pieces and kids would, you know, you know, a bunch of 10 year olds kind of <laughs> workshopping stories was pretty cool. Um, so, I mean, so it was just writing was just always something I did. Um, I guess in high school, I, I did, I, 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 but I don't, I, I don't think I was consciously resistant to it, but it wasn't something that was always obvious to me as something I wanted to do. Um, I didn't join the, the, you know, high school newspaper until my junior year. Um, college I came, I remember I came to college, you know, and I kind of, your freshman year, they have, you know, that first orientation week, they have all these different things, you know, to kind of check out what you can get involved in and kind of, to kind of get kids excited about being in college. And I remember I went to the, the newspaper kind of open house for incoming freshmen and I thought it was, seemed pretty miserable <laughs> the way they were portraying it. I was like, well, I don't want to do this the way you got, you know, it's like a bunch of self-serious seniors being like, you know, we got, we are like dedicated to this and we're doing, you know, some like we'll take, they'll basically, they were enrolled in school, but not taking any classes and just editing the newspaper. And I'm like, that's pretty ridiculous for, for just this. So, uh, you know, so I wasn't immediately gravitating towards writing in college. And then, uh, well then a, some friends or I, I met a guy through a friend who was running a satire magazine and, uh, you know, I kind of started contributing to that and got involved with that. And I don't know it, it, I, that that was a big part of my college. This is a long, very long winded. No, that's great. Giving you, yeah. But uh, I, I did that a lot in college and I, you know, I had a major that forced me to write a lot. And then I guess graduation rolled around. And I was like, well, I, I guess I can write, you know, and I'm interested mm -hmm. in things. I'm an interest. Yeah. You know, so maybe I can do this. I, it was never. It was never like a very like my my wife is also a journalist and she's known. She just says you know she was you know she was nine when she knew she wanted to be a you know a journalist. So I, I think it was there was never a huge revelation for me that this is what I wanted to do. It just became like oh this is something I do and it's I seem to be doing it pretty well for kind of the standards of where my level is. So I guess I can keep pursuing it and you know it's somehow turned into a career yeah so so as you go so where did you go to college i should say first oh i went to wesleyan university in connecticut okay so from from there you know you kind of you had a knack knack for writing and you figure oh well, well this might as well make a go of this so what was the next step at, at a college like what do you, what are you looking at what are you looking for and where do you finally land um well so my 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 wife who was my girlfriend in college was also a year older than me. So she had a job in journalism in New York. You know, so she had already graduated and was living in New York and working for a newspaper. And, you know, I was graduating. I wanted to live with her. And so I said, well, like, there's journalism jobs in New York. Um, music journalism seems to make sense. You know, let me call up these places and find out if there's music, inter you know, internships. And I guess I was pretty naive about this stuff at the time. So I think I probably called them during my spring break, which is, you know, like 
March or April, you know, calling up Rolling Stone and Spin being like, do you guys have internship programs? And, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, yeah, you know, they've been filled since December or whatever. You know, I didn't kind of realize that these were these highly coveted uh, positions or kind of opportunities. Uh, I, I was a DJ at my college radio station, WESU, and they would send, you know, labels would send promo music there and whatever. And then, but also, I guess they had, someone had sent the second issue of the Fader magazine to the, to the radio station. It was just kind of sitting in the common area. And I looked at it and I was like, well, this seems interesting. I had never heard of it before. And, you know, I emailed them for some general thing, being like, are you guys looking for interns? And I guess no one had asked them yet. And they had said, yeah, actually, we, we would love an intern, like send some stuff and, you know, or just like whatever. And I think I mailed them this satire magazine that I edited. And I think I had, there was a kind of a upstart music magazine at the school. And I think I wrote some stuff for that. And I sent it to them and sent them a terrible cover letter. I'm sure I've continued to be terrible at cover letters and <laughs> they've, uh, but they said, yeah, you know, I guess no one, no one at the time else wanted to be there, their <laughs> intern. So I was the first intern at the fader, uh, in the summer of 2000. Um, yeah. And I started working on, I guess by that time they were working on the fifth issue. So I started as an intern there and I worked there for the su- that summer and kind of then my internship ended and I was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen now. And then they said, you know, I mean, at the time the fader was tiny. I mean, it was literally one person was doing was it was their full time job. There were several people who worked on it, but one there was only one person who was that was his job was to work on the fader. And they were had a little bit more money and they had, were able to hire two more people and they had offered me a job to to start working on it. And so they said, you know, we can't offer you a lot of money, but do you want to be the senior editor of the fader? And I said, well, that's a ridiculous title because I'm <laughs> right. 22, but, uh, okay, I guess I'll do that. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I started. And I start, I ended up working for the fader for almost a decade. Wow. So, so you, you hook up, hook up there. What, uh, what becomes your relationship to, ambition in in this line of work and and maybe who were you reading at the time that stoked your ambitious flame so to speak i guess i i don't i mean ambition i mean i like were you maybe i know like um you know like maybe you were reading a a chuck klosterman or something you're like oh the way he's he's doing this like i'd like to get to that level or something you know what i mean like yeah i mean I, i i was you know i think coming in on the ground floor on a on a project like the fader when I did and kind of, you know, everything was up in the air. It could be whatever we wanted it to be. So I guess my ambition was to be part of this magazine and kind of see what we could do and what I could do with it. Um, you know, I, I, there wasn't, I wasn't there. I mean, I should say, you know, this, I'm, I'm, I was kind of always interested in being an editor. That was kind of what I enjoyed the most doing. I mean, by, by necessity, I had to write a lot because we didn't have much money to pay other people. Like we ended up, you know, writing the, the the staff of the fader ended up writing the majority of the book, you know, the editors wrote it for the most, for the most uh, part. Um, you know, I think the guys who are kind of older than me who were involved in it, you know, they were, I don't want to say dismissive, but they were kind of 
uninterested in tapping into the established music journalist kind of the community. They, I think they were like, well, let's kind of do, let's do our own stuff. Let's kind of pick non-traditional writers. Let's kind of go about this as a non-traditional way. I mean, it's, it's hard to think about it now because we, because we, everything, um, you know, publication wise is so, you know, web, you know, forward now, kind of internet forward. But, you know, the thing was we made a magazine that was our focus and kind of at the time, you know, Fader was really known for being one of the kind of visually impressive magazines. The photography was great. The design was cool. So, you know, there was also kind of a feeling like people weren't like checking it necessarily for the articles at the time. So we felt like we had a little bit of a freedom to do whatever we wanted, which mm. means kind of pushing the boundaries or I don't know that that sounds a little bit more uh, self-congratulatory than I intended to, but just kind of trying weird shit, I think is more kind of where our thoughts were. So, um, you know, Knox Robinson, he was the editor at large at the time. Um, He's kind of uh, largely stopped writing for publications. He does some other very interesting stuff. You know, he was he was influenced in time in terms of you know saying like you know kind of redefining of what I thought a traditional or redefining what a a music profile could be or should be. And you know, he was doing you know some experiments that were pretty far out, like just writing a short story when it was supposed to be, you know, a 400 word article about an R&B singer that didn't even really mention the R&B singer or, you know, I mean, he did more reported stuff and, you know, he would go out to Detroit and talk to the White Stripes and whatever. And, but, you know, just kind of looking, not kind of going about it the way everyone else was going about it. Um, you know, the book that we passed around a lot, uh, within the, within the, office was um the new journalism which is the compilation put together by uh tom wolf that has a lot of people i mean i had it has all sort you know i think there's a joan didion piece in there i think there's terry southern you know this kind of you know this was i had read i think a little bit of joan didion in college and maybe some, you know i think there was some Hunter S. thompson stuff but you know so it's just like well can we kind of bring you know this is obviously very high-minded for a glossy magazine that most people people are looking for, you know, pictures of rappers and rock bands at. But it was like, oh, like, can't we try to do something a little far out or weird or different than everyone else is doing? Mm. And the fact that you wanted to be an editor over being a writer, that that's a special kind of brain to want to... Yeah, be an editor, say, versus a writer. And what was it um, maybe about being an editor that, that appealed to you more on the outset? Well, writing's really hard, and <laughs> it's always will be, always has been. Editing isn't as hard. I mean, in ter well, I guess, you know, there's obviously a million types of editing. There's, you know, getting into the nitty-gritty of the story and kind of or also the larger thinking about the story. And then there's actually finding stories and figuring out stories. And I don't know, I think editing, yeah, I, I think what, and this is true in my writing and my editing, I think what I'm really interested in is kind of finding the threads and the patterns and everything and kind of figuring it all, how it all works and what it's saying about culture and what it's saying about our world and kind of what 
everything reveals and how things, you know, what's new, what's not new, what's interconnected, what's an entirely different thing. And I think, you know, editing just like allows you to see more of the world and kind of help you figure out the world a little bit easier. And, you know, it's, you can, it's more collaborative, you know, it can be, you know, helping people realize their thoughts and realize what they think is interesting. And, you know, also editing it, you know, there's plenty of, you know, I think kind of what's defined my work over the past two decades or so is just a, a curiosity and a great amount of things. You know, I don't, I'm not one of those writers who has an obsession or a singular obsession or uh, some subject that they want to keep exploring over and over again. I, I'd rather have an article, you know, I'd rather learn a ton while writing an article and researching an article. So I think, you know, as an editor, you get to learn about all sorts of stuff. You know, you get to learn things about that you had no idea you want to learn about. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think too, with being an editor, a lot of, a lot of it's like being a really good coach that wants to see their players succeed. And if all the players are succeeding, then the team is succeeding. Um, yeah. And I think that that takes a particular kind of mindset too, uh, of a much more unselfish mindset. Uh, just speaking personally, like I just, I, I gravitate more towards the writing because I, my ego is tied to that more. Like I want to be sort of on the field. Mm -hmm. Um, but I totally, I totally get like when I talk to editor type people, they're like, nah, I don't, I'd rather kind of like what you're saying. You have like this real generous mindset of wanting to like spread the love and like, uh, realize someone else's vision. And in so doing, that's a big payoff for you as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't feel like I, yes, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think about how to say this. Yeah. I I think it's, it's cool to, to help people and it's cool to, <laughs> you know, it's, it's cool to, to get ideas out in the world. It's, I think if you had talked to people who I was editing, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like what I would constantly be telling is like, I want to hear more of you in this. I want this to be, I want it this weirder, like let loose, you know, I think, you know, I, I it's, it's so a lot of the people that we ended up, you know, fader, our listeners don't know it's a, it's a started as a magazine, a music and culture magazine. And the focus was on emerging talent and sound. And, you know, we, also want to reflect that in the writers we were working with and you know kind of in the mid 2000s a lot of the people were coming out of blogs and you know places where they were developing their own unique voices and their own styles and that's why people were paying attention to them and then some you know they'd get their first paid gig at a magazine and you know a lot of them would get their voices taken out or they would feel like they'd have to suppress their voices or they'd have to kind of tone down who they were or make their writing more cliche. And I would constantly felt like when I, when they were editing, writing for the fader, I would constantly be saying like, like, do you, I don't, we don't have to fit any, you know, house style or, you know, prescribed way of talking about things like talk about this, how you talk about it on your own web, you know, your own blog. That's why I asked you to do this. You know, I could, you know, I could, there's a million straight up music journalists who can turn in the same thing. Like it's, it's about like feeling comfortable saying what you want to say, you know, and you know, you obviously have a take on this and that's why I want, that's why I asked you to write this, you know? Mm. 
Yeah. And, and with respect to your your writing and stuff, like when you're inspired by something, you're like, oh, that's something I want to write about. Um, and then you get going, and of course, as you referenced earlier, writing is hard. That honeymoon period often comes to an end, and then you find yourself in the middle of this nasty shitstorm of a draft that you've started. Yeah. So, so uh, when you get to that ugly middle or messy middle, however you want to call it, um, how how are you processing that that part of the writing phase and to power through so you can at least get a lump of something done? At this stage in my career, I if I'm writing about something, I'm going to try to do as much research as possible into it. You know, that's independent research. That's reading what's already been written about it and kind of what's surrounding it. What I'm writing about reminds me of that I want to read about and then talking and talking and talking to some more people and finding secondaries and tracking down people who might have a perspective that no one else has talked to about this and going into the writing process. I feel, you know, I'm most comfortable when I have a lot to draw on, you know, that I've, you know, either through my own original reporting or kind of found other things. So when it's messy, you know, I think it's <laughs> the best I can do is maybe think about, well, you know, how, how do I, like, what do I know? Like, you know, what do I, what can I, you kind of go back to the source material, I guess is, you know, I think at this stage, that's kind of what I'm interested in doing. I had, I took a writing class in college with a, with a writer named Annie Dillard. Yeah. I, I mean, I actually, I'm not, there, there were some people in that class who were very big Annie Dillard followers and very, I don't want to say acolytes, but very kind of attuned to her. And I, and I wasn't, but she, you know, she had this writing class and basically the way it would work is met once a week. And she would basically, she would spend those three hours and the first 90 minutes, she would just talk basically and just kind of tell you things. And it wasn't, it was like, it was always kind of weird. Like it wasn't like a lecture. She was just like, here's this thing in my head that you should know if you want to be a writer. Here's this other thing that's in my head that you should know if you want to be a writer and just keep going and going and going. And, um, yeah. And then the second half, we talk about our stories that we had written for, for that week. Um, and it was, a, it was a class about memoir and kind of the one thing that, that stuck with me throughout all these years is she once said, she, you know, you should learn something with every, you, your reader should learn something from every sentence that you write. Now, I don't think I achieve that, but it's just, you know, if I feel like I can impart knowledge or something that I learn over, you know, to my readers, I guess that's kind of what I keep back going back to. It's just like, okay, like, what am I trying to convey? You know, what's the point of all this? Hmm. And, you know, if I have time and the inclination, I can hopefully put some of my spin and voice and perspective on that. That makes it a lot more exciting. So it's not just a, you know, a dump of everything that's in my Google doc about the subject, but you know, that's kind of how I go about it. I don't know. Did I answer that your question? Yeah, for sure. Uh, like being able to fall back on, on your research is a way to, it's it's an energizing, animating force to the writing process, uh, both in terms of the material you need to push through, but also, and this is just me, like my own, say, anxiety with either a story or even like with, I, I find if I get nervous or anxious about what a, a podcast or 
someone I have to talk to for a story I might be writing, oftentimes it's like, oh, Brendan, you haven't uh, – do more research. Like, do, yeah. just do a little more legwork. And the more legwork I do, I'm like, oh, this is – all right, I feel better now. I feel more equipped to help carry a conversation or nudge it in the right ways. Or I have such a backlog of information that no matter what Eric says or Debbie Millman or Laura Hillenbrand, whatever they say – in a sense, their answers are guiding the conversation because I can ping pong something they've said in the past. And right. and it's just like, yeah, it's like just do a little more work. If I'm feeling that anxiety build up, it's like oh, you you haven't done enough work yet, so do more work. Yeah, and, you know, it's like, you know, I'll do all my research and I'll print it out and I'll go through it and I'll highlight it and I'll think, you know, I know how, where the story is going and what needs to be in there. And if I'm stuck, I can – go back in there and see things that are like, oh, wait, no, this part's actually interesting. I kind of forgot about this or this kind of as a connection between this part and this part that I can use or, oh, yeah, I remember there was that book that you kind of looked at but didn't really, you know, what was that in that chapter and kind of go back to that and try to find it or, you know, you know, find something that they say and, you know, look back into who that person is that they mentioned. You know, it's, it's, there's always more information to kind of, help guide you there, you know? Yeah, I think that in the piece you did for The Ringer on Jenny O'Dell and her book, How to Do Nothing, mm -hmm. does that particularly well because not only are you sort of um, you know, re reviewing, like sort of tangentially reviewing her book and also tangentially profiling her, but you're also pulling in like Cal Newport, who mm -hmm. is, is this uh, sort of a, a digital refugee. You know, he's just not yeah. really on the the grid in that kind of way, and yet he's a prolific writer and a best-selling author. So you're able to mm -hmm. kind of pull that in. So, um, with respect to that, like, how are you like how are you able to even like corral him for the story? He's kind of hard to reach. Um, I I'm trying. To, I think I just I want to say I emailed his book publicist who yeah. just was like okay yeah like he'll do it you know and so so yeah this and was, had you was read his weird. had you read his um his latest book i haven't read his latest one yet uh, digital minimalism i hadn't i had i had heard well i guess i had i had heard about it so i hadn't i was like i'm writing this i pitched that story as you know i want to do a story on jenny odell mm -hmm. i think you know she i you know i i had read you know, her, her piece for the New York times. And, uh, I kind of looked into her. I saw she had this book coming. I got a copy of her book. I thought the book was interesting. I had watched, I watched, um, you know, some stuff that she had online of her talking. So I pitched that just as kind of a profile on her. Um, my editor at the ringer said, you know, I want to do something more than just about her. Like, I don't feel like we could just do a profile of her. We kind of want to, I want to, you know, I think in my pitch, I had mentioned, you know, she's part of this larger movement about disconnecting and, you know, but that she takes a kind of a different approach to it. Um, and so my editor was like, I want you to kind of uh, I, I talk about talk about and talk to some other people. I mean, I think I would have I think most likely if I had, if it had just been a profile on Jenny O'Dell, I think I probably would have ended up reading Cal Newport's book anyway. But I wanted to kind of get in you know, more interviews of other people. So I, you know, along with reading his book, I, I was able to talk to him as well. Yeah. So it was just like, yeah. So it became something bigger and bringing in more voices and kind of having, you know, talking to him, talking to Catherine Price, who wrote this book called, you know, how to break up with your phone. So these were other kind of 
experts or kind of people who have become experts in, or at least um, perspectives in this movement to disconnect from technology. But then, you know, I also talked to, you know, a doctor who's done research in terms of, you know, what the internet does to our brains. And, you know, I talked to some other people, some who made it into the piece and some who did not, but uh, yeah, just, it couldn't, you know, it was, I think if it was just about Jenny O'Dell, I probably would have talked to more people about her specifically, you know, talked to other artists, uh, other, you know, maybe contemporaries, you know, and, um, but this was kind of by broadening out the subject, I was able to kind of talk. That's where I kind of got my other sources from. And did you come to this story because at the moment, maybe, are like, are you experiencing a conflicted relationship with social media and phone addiction, so to speak? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think most people are. I mean, I think that's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty natural problem to people for people to have. I think it's, you know, it's it's an anxiety I think we're all dealing with. You know, as I kind of allude a little bit to the piece, I think in the beginning it was a lot of the concern was about what's this doing to our children? What's this doing to our teens? And I think people are starting to really say like, oh, wait, what is this doing to me? You know, I am not a prolific social media poster or, you know, I don't I don't tweet a lot. I, I never have tweeted a lot or put a lot on Facebook or, you know, that's that's never been my mode for expression. But I think as a curious person, you know, that was an insight for a long time. That was an insight into people's lives and their thoughts and what they were interested in. And, yeah, it's compelling. And. It became clear after a while that it was limiting productivity and I didn't feel good on it. And I, you know, I, I mean, I, I remember the, like when I signed up for Twitter, I, I liked it cause I could see what my friends were doing and I could read their jokes and it was like a fun time. And it long ago stopped being a fun time going on Twitter. And I was like, why, why am I doing this? And you know, why do I, I have, I have two children and, why do I sometimes look at my phone when I should be paying more attention to them? Or, you know, I mean, it's the same shit everyone's dealing yeah. with. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's weird. You know, you go to the, it's in one sense, it's weird. You know, you go to the park with your kids and, you know, you let the kids go play because, you know, it's good for them to have independent play. And you look around and all the other parents are looking at their phones and I'm like, oh, that's gross. But I'm like, well, you know, I'm not necessarily want to talk to these people. I guess, I mean, is it worse if I'm reading a magazine instead of looking at my phone? I mean, I don't know, but it it did feel weird to be. It's it's incre felt increasingly bad the amount of time <laughs> I was looking at my phone, I guess. And so yeah, I was like, of course it's a concern. You know, it's, as a parent, it's something I talk about with other parents. But uh, yeah, it's, it's so you know I've been experimenting. You know, I've never done like a fully regimented detox situation but you know i've over the years i've tried to figure out different tips and tools to limit my time on phones and social media yeah what what practices do you have in place to curtail your you know your uh, i'll use just addiction for a lack of a better term but sure like, I mean, but yeah, yeah so yeah. what do you I use think we to... all have this addiction but yeah, yeah for so. sure so what <laughs> yeah. So, yeah so what do you do to curtail that uh right now what i have so I, on my laptop, which I spend most of my time in front of as during the workday or as I work, um, I, well, I guess I'm, 
I've deleted Facebook, which is, you know, which is a pretty basic thing for most people to do. Um, for Twitter, I, I've now given my wife my, she knows, she's the only person who knows the password to my Twitter account. So like if I ever want to tweet something or even look at stuff, really, like, uh, you know, I have to ask her to sign me in and we don't <laughs> in the same place. So, or she, so yeah, so it's, so I mean, I'm kind of trying to be off Twitter as much as possible. Um, and I guess even when I'm on, I have like one of those, forget what's the Google, I have some, you know, Google Chrome extension. So I'm only allowed to be on Twitter and Instagram through my, you know, laptop for 10 minutes a day. Uh, on my phone, I don't have, you know, I don't have the apps for Twitter or Twitter or Instagram, and I keep it in black and white, which I guess is the, the new thing that people do, to, so it's not as exciting, you know, visually appealing. So yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do. It's it's a constant work and a constant struggle and a constant losing situation, but uh, yeah, I'm trying to limit it as much as possible. And as the real conflict with it also is as as writers or artists, it's it's part and parcel to be part of a community. And mm -hmm. the more we maybe step back from the, the ledge of at least the digital community, it's like it's, you know, at one point you need you need or want to maybe participate in it to share other people's work, to share your own work. Uh, but yeah. at the same time, you get sucked into the vortex that has been algorithmically designed to steal your attention. Uh, have you is that something you you're conflicted about just being in the creative ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, when I have my wife sign in for me, I mean, what it is, it's, it's not for me to put a joke up. It's for me to post an article. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel a little bit bad that my only social online presence is like self-promotion, but also like that's kind of, <laughs> I feel like the, the situation I've been forced into, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like, you know, it's like, well, they're not, they're not doing that much good for me. Like, I don't really feel like I owe it to them to give them, you know, my, my, you know, my thoughts or my, you know, expressions of myself. Um, you know, so I don't know if anyone actually ever sees what I put on the, on social, even when I promote it. But, you know, I, I think I'm a little bit older than a lot of the writers who have found most, so many opportunities and, um, you know, community through social media. And, you know, I think, I, you know, there's just a very micro generational difference. I mean, I, I've, I've gotten very little work. I guess this is the way I've gotten very little work through social media over the course of the past 10 years. So if I lose that one or two articles a year because of that, I guess it is what it is. I'll just have to write better pitches, you know, to make up for that, you know? So yeah. am I missing out on the conversation? I mean, you know, if I do, it, it is, you know, it's, mm. you know, it's like, yeah, I, I think about, you know, when, when I talked to Cal Newport uh, for the article, you know, he said something that he was like, we kind of bought into this myth that it's that that it's become, you know, essential for for careers to have this online presence. And he's like, you know, that there's no real proof of that. You know what I mean? This it's they've who's promoting that idea that you have to have an online presence if you want to like make it it's 
most likely the online content companies like they are the the social media companies that's they're the ones who are saying if you want to you have to have a social presence you know if you want to you know it's like they've kind of just they've told you that this is essential and you're like oh well i guess this is essential it's like maybe it's not essential you know so or it's not essential for a long-term career or development of abilities you know Mm. So how did you end up uh, hooking up with Grantland when uh, when they were up and running and then, of course, parlaying that into the ringer, which is kind of like Grantland 2.0? Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've been lucky to freelance for um, both of those outlets. Well, for the ringer, no, sorry, for Grantland, um, it started, so Chris Ryan, who's an editor there, uh, worked at the Fader for a while, so I knew him. Mm. Um, and so I was able to kind of pitch him stories I, I mainly pitched him. I think you know, I kind of when I when I would write for him, it would be sports stuff. And then uh, at the time, there, uh, so he was running their kind of sports blog stuff, which I think was called the Triangle. And then Mark Lasanti was editing uh, Hollywood Prospectus, which was more their pop culture blog stuff. And uh, I knew him socially, just around Los Angeles. Um, you know, just. He's kind of one one of the you know he had done uh, Defamer and been around for a while and kind of worked at some places. So I you know just they were they're both just guys I knew kind of uh, professionally and socially mm-hmm. that I could start writing for them. And um, you know then we became the Ringer. Chris you know was one of the first hires, uh, Bill Simmons' first hires that you know his core people that he brought over. Um, so I knew him, so I could pitch him stories. I knew Sean Fennessy over the years, who's now the or was their first editor in chief and remains their editor in chief. So, you know, just just people I have professional relationships and you know somewhat social relationships over the years. Mm-hmm. And what was what? Are, how have you gotten you know skilled at the the well the I will say the science of of pitching a story uh, maybe before you were you knew them as well. I'm sure like your pitches now to them are kind of like, Hey, I have a couple sentences. Like this sounds good. Um, yeah. like, do you like this? I'd like to do this. And they'd be like, yeah, it sounds good. Or nah, maybe not so much, but like, right. uh, but pitching is a huge, huge part of this game. And if you're going in cold, um, what's the nature and shape and process by which you write your pitches? Yeah. Um, I, don't know that I've perfected it at all, or <laughs> I, I feel like I am, I am constantly falling flat on my pitches. But um, you know, I, I think I, I, I guess I can tell you what I don't think works <laughs> that, I, yeah. that I still do is that I probably overwrite my pitches. Um, you know, I, my pitches are probably some often too long, and uh, I think what right what you know you want to you know you want to as you're saying like you know now I have relationships with certain editors where I can send them a few sentences being like, Hey, I'm thinking about this because of this. And it's pretty cool because of this. And they're like, yeah, that is cool. Or like, I don't know. But I think I, sh- you know, my guess, uh, I would recommend getting closer to that for all pitches. I think than you know, three paragraphs, which I sometimes still do, you know, to, if, if I'm going in cold with people, me, you know, I think you want to show that you are, you've, I think with your pitch, you want to show that you are 
a considerate thinker and you've thought about the subject and you kind of know what you're doing and you have an outlook and there's people that you want to talk to. Like you've done some of the work already, so you know what's interesting about it, but then you're also making it open-ended enough to your to the editor that you're pitching, like, I want to learn more. You know what I mean? That it's like there's all this other stuff that can be explored or that might reveal itself in the course of the reporting. You know what I mean? I think yeah. editors don't want to feel like you've got, you know, I think, you know, I remember as an editor when someone would pitch me and be like, hey, I talked to this person after the show and I got a really great interview and, you know, I have a story, I have a 600 word story ready to go. I'd be like, no, thanks. You know, like this is, this is a collaboration, you know, like if you have this thing all ready to go, I'm not so interested. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of editors feel that way. It's like, okay, you've kind of implanted, you've, you've sparked my curiosity. Like what can we come up together that, you know, to make this a cool story that I'll be excited about too, you know? So I think that's, my recommendation is to, you know, just have it's, you know, in your pitches to have an exciting idea, show that you have a perspective about it or something that you can bring to it and that there's room for you and your editor to kind of go on this journey together, hopefully, and kind of make something fun and interesting. So over the course of a, a, a typical work week for you, uh, how much of that is divided up into um, writing columns and stories, and how much of that is idea generation and pitches? Uh, well, I guess I should say there is no typical work week. <laughs> I mean, it all depends <laughs> on where where I'm at with my life and things. And uh, Are you kind you know, of like a 100% freelancer? Yeah, I'm 100% oh. freelancer. Okay, yeah, cool. This, I mean, this is how I make my money, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I should say, uh, you know, I mean, if I'm deep in a story, like I'll just be working on the story all week, you know, or you know that you know it could be a week of interviewing people and you know researching stuff and transcribing, or you know, and then you know could be spending days, you know. But you know, like right now, I'm kind of in between stories, so I'm generating ideas, writing pitches, you know, that's what I've been doing this week. So do you have any kind of daily ritual that you do anchor your day on? Like even if the work is a bit scattered or you're in different parts of a project, or are there certain things that you hinge your day on? Like these things have to happen every morning just so I stay sane. Uh, no, I haven't developed anything like that. You know, it's like, I mean, I, 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 Nothing work-wise hinges like that's not like what the anchor of my day is. You know, it's it's what anchors my day is like getting my kids breakfast mm -hmm. ready and prepping their lunches. You know, I guess and figuring out when I have to pick them up and everything like that. And do you have a way that in the mornings or or any time that you kind of check in with yourself, whether that's journaling or meditating, that kind of that kind of thing to clear your headspace? Uh I think probably the, the closest to that is, you know, walking my dog. I walk mm -hmm. my dog for about, you know, 45 minutes up and for a while. Yeah, that kind of kind of clears my head a little bit or kind of, you know, I, I going again with this phone thing, I've been trying to figure out like, oh, like maybe, I sh you know, I go, you know, because I go and I'm listening to music or I'm listening to podcasts as I walk my dog. And, you know, that kind of 
inspire some creativity or thought in my head, hopefully. But, you know, I'm thinking, would it be, you know, be better to be phoneless and just taking in the world around me as I do it and not have that, you know, when a, one podcast ends and I'm looking for the next one, not to take those extra, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes checking my emails or whatever. So, yeah, I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm debating that, but yeah, so we'll hopefully I, hopefully, and I'll be walking my dog without headphones in without a phone <laughs> or I'll be, or I'll go back to it somehow find a, an old iPad or uh, old iPod that I can use and just listen to music. Nice. In the last maybe five years or so um i think you're you're kind of in a good sweet spot in your career where you can probably identify this like um, maybe in the last five to ten years what would you say you're a lot better at today than you were just five five or more years ago what am i a lot better at yeah maybe ways you found to streamline things or just yeah just skill wise you know i've i've got i'm getting better i used to be a stay up late, write, you know, to write kind of guy, you know, and I think that developed out of necessity um, because, you know, as I said, when I started my career, I was an editor and that's what I did all day was, you know, during my work day, I wouldn't have time to write. I would be setting up stories and being in meetings and emailing people and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff like that and kind of listening to music, kind of getting things going to screenings or checking things out and then you know there wasn't time to write so I'd I'd write at night because that's when the email stopped and so I kind of got into that habit and uh I don't know if that is the most productive way to work so I think uh over the last five or so years I've gotten better about like actually writing during the day which was a huge step for me I think it's but yeah and also kind of tuning out some of those distractions and kind of you know, focusing and like, oh, like you work during the workday and those emails can wait and, you know, you don't have to do all that stuff that, you know, you feel, you might feel like you're, you have to do. Mm. And just like, you know, this, you know, the way you're, the way I'm, you're making money is you don't get paid unless you turn in the article. And so you gotta, (laughs) you gotta, you gotta spend the time actually writing the article and, you know, getting it in, you know, so. What was that transition like? between uh you know being with fader for so long and then transitioning to freelancing um you know well i should say there was kind of a there after i left fader there was a period of of um of uh, you know just freelancing and that you know it's it was tough and it's you know you kind of figure out like you try to think about your friends who have started working at other places or guys that you met one time or women that you once emailed with who were like, Oh yeah, they have a job and they could probably, I could probably send them, you know, ideas or so. And so you just kind of go that way. And so it's tough for a while, but then before I kind of went back into, uh, freelancing mainly, I, I did have a job, I guess they're called a creative agency. So doing more like a lifestyle marketing work. So mm-hmm. I did that for a few years. Um, but yeah, I kind of missed the creative outlet on it and, you know, that, I mean, there was creative elements to what I was doing and involved with some creative thinking, but in the long run, it's in the service of building some multi-million dollar company's brand. And so it's not always the most rewarding and, you know, you don't feel good about putting that up on your Twitter all the time. Like I made this magazine for a car company. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
know, I got back into freelancing. It was tough. And, but you know, at this was, I had, I had contacts who were working at cool places like, you know, Grantland at the time. And so, yeah, it was, it's okay. It was okay. It kind of, you could, I could find, I had re- people who were receptive to my ideas and yeah, it, was, it, it worked out all right. You know, it's, it's always a struggle. It's still a struggle finding editors are incredibly busy and you know, they don't always have time to write back to story ideas, but it's, you know, you can't just sit around waiting for them to, to write you back. You got to come up with more ideas. Right. And in that, in that, in that period of time where let's say you're, you're working at a place that, you know, wasn't necessarily as creatively fulfilling as you would have hoped. And it uh, probably took a little bit of your soul to show up there all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that it was, it was, I was, I, it was, I was doing good work and I was working with really smart people at this place, but yes, it was, you know, I, it was more about, I, I, I think it was just the kind of the, the amount of work that was also a lot of frustrating, you know, or just kind of feeling like I was in meetings all the time and not doing enough work. And I was often delegating, you know, I should say I was often felt like I was delegating the work that I felt like I would have been more rewarding uh-huh. if I was doing myself you know what i mean like it was you know we were doing cool stuff it was just like i didn't get to do it i just had to kind of figure out who would do the work you know Mm -hmm. which is not as exciting and did have you in over the course of your career ever um been stricken by those feelings of like competition or or jealousy among peers when you're looking over your shoulder uh at people you admire even people who are just kind of in your same station but you know they feel like you feel like they're on some sort of meteoric path and you're like kind of down here and did you ever have moments like that and if you did how did you process it um yeah of course I think those are totally normal feelings to have I think everyone has them um if, if not they must have had incredible I don't know maybe incredible times with therapy as young young children to not to not have that um uh yeah i mean you know you do it i mean but also you know i've also realized i guess the way i cope is just like no one knows everyone's full story you know like Mm -hmm. people who are i mean i've often found you know people who seem like they have it all together are you know barely holding it together you know what i mean it's like yeah when you see someone who's writing you know, story after story that you can't believe. And you're like, Oh my God, how are they so productive? How are they so, you know, doing all this? And like, they're probably freaking out all the time. You know, they're making sacrifices that you have to ask yourself, are you willing to make? And there's some sacrifices that, you know, I found like I'm not willing to make, you know, there's things that I'm not willing to forfeit. And, you know, there are people who've decided not to have families because of their jobs. You know what I mean? They've mm-hmm. decided not to have s- friends. They've decided not to see families, to miss things, you know? And it's just like, you know, we, we're all under different economic realities. You know, we're all under, you know, you, you, you don't know what everyone else is dealing with, I guess is my way. You know, it's like all I, all you know is your own reality. And that's what you need to judge yourself against. I would say is, you know, what's, what works for you and what does not work for you. You know, I guess that's, that's my method of coping. Right. Which is just further amplified by, by the toxicity, 
uh, the toxic nature of social media when it feels like every their blo- yeah. the those blow dried outsides are are it's just like wow this person's fucking killing it and then I yeah. and then I'm like god damn it I'm gonna I can't pay my electric bill or something you yeah know? in terms of your work what are what is still um, exciting you and bringing you back to the page? What are the things that are like, uh, I, you know, that are just really stoking your creative flames and um, keep you, you know, drawn up pitches and, uh, you know, send writing great pieces for the ringer and elsewhere. I mean, life is, is continuously interesting. Like, I don't think that I'm the most interesting person in the world. You know, I, I like I, I, there's there's a lot of writers who are great essayists and you know bring their selves into everything they do, or that some are good, some are not good. But like that's never been my approach. It's been like, look at me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I can't wait for you guys to think about what I've got to say about this. Like, I you know like. I am happy to learn about so much in this world like that I do not know about. And there's life is constantly, you know, okay. There's constantly new things happening and things developing and remutating and like that. I'm just curious about that. I want to know about that. Why is it like that? How did that become like that? You know, it's like I would, when I got into music journalism, I would meet people who would be like, Oh yeah, I heard that band. Yeah, whatever. They sound like this other band, or they sound. Oh yeah, I listened to that. Yeah, I remember that band when it was this band ten years ago. And I'm like, why the fuck are you doing this if you're just so <laughs> jaded about this right. and like nothing's ever exciting to you? Like, there's if it's not exciting to you, like, why do it? So it's just yeah, it's like finding stuff that makes you excited or be like, oh, I had never thought that they could do this with this, or like, I never thought that this thing was going to become a thing again, you know, like it's, I don't know. Like I want to learn about what music for plants sounds like. And, you know, I want to see a documentary about that. You know, it's like, there's all sorts of crazy shit out there that you should learn about, you know, like, yeah. Like why, this, why, uh, getting your, see, get uh, like your piece on Odell and the attention economy. Like that seems like the, your curiosity really comes through in that that you're trying to really take a deep dive on what it means to harness or take back our attention in an era where so many entities out there are looking to pirate that yeah i mean it's there's all sorts of stuff out there that i've just been like oh i'd never thought about that you know like you know i uh i wrote a piece for vulture and it was about like um that i, I wrote about uh you know like how how a band, like, if you get a song on Rick and Morty, like, how does that affect your life, you know? And it's because, like, you know, when I was in college, I was really into Blonde Redhead, and they were kind of always, like, a band that was around, and, you know, they kind of maintained, and they would tour every couple of years and put out an album every couple of years, and then some, the creator, one of the creators, Rick and Morty, was like, oh, I like this song for pivotal moment in this tv show which for a tv show that has obsessive fans and it's just like that changes their you know the band was like yeah sure you can use our song and it like changes the trajectory of their lives or their career it's like from now on that they their most famous song will be a song that was kind of a throwaway song 
You know what I mean? It's like, that's really interesting. What does that mean? Like, you have a 20 you know, year body of work and then some guy makes some decision to use your song at this one moment. And it's like, oh no, this is the song that's gonna define us. Some song that we recorded at the very end of our album, you know? It's like, that's crazy, you know? Like, what does that mean for you as a creative person, you know? So, yeah. I think that's really cool. And I think there's a great lesson there that you just have to, you just have, whatever your creative endeavor is, whether it's freelance journalism or music or painting or, or whatever, you just have to keep showing up. And mm-hmm. showing up and do enough, do a lot of bad work, and eventually it's going to get good, and then maybe something will be great. Who knows? But yeah. but just like you know, the showrunner for Rick and Morty like has a song from this band that's had a twenty year body of work, and suddenly it's like, who are these guys? They're they're twenty year over. They're an overnight success. But the fact is, they've been showing up for two decades. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I always think there's this. Uh, Neil Brennan was um, famously, he was kind of Dave Chappelle's creative partner. They did mm-hmm. half fake together. They did the Chappelle show together. And, you know, after Chappelle's show ended, he had this uh, podcast for a while called The Champs. <laughs> I just remember he had this line. He was like, he was interviewing someone and he was talking about like kind of life after the Chappelle show and like kind of, you know, like a little bit of the shine of him had kind of fallen off because he wasn't working with Dave Chappelle anymore because Dave Chappelle wasn't doing anything. And he was like, motherfuckers, I might get hot again. Like, <laughs> don't, you know, like, don't treat me like I'm a nobody because you never know who's going to get hot again. You never know, like, what's going to, someone's going to want to be interested in you. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll see on Twitter or whatever that some 28-year-old writer saying, like, I'm so old. And I'm like, <laughs> if you're into this and you want to do this, like, it's a long run, you know, like we're going to, if you, you know, (laughs) if any of us ever get to retire, like you're still a long way away from that. And not every good journalist eventually gets a job as a TV writer for a show on Hulu. You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) I don't, you know, if like, if you want to do this, like you got to just keep doing it and you got to keep going. Like, and even if you do get that show on Hulu, like that show is going to get canceled and, the job on Hulu doesn't pay nearly as much as you think it does, you know? So, you know, it's, it's, it's a long road, I guess is the point. And like what you've got is your ideas and your work ethic and your ability to turn in good copy and, you know, have a perspective, I guess is, is, I guess that's what I would say. Yeah. And let me ask you uh, one more thing. Well, well, two more things. One's more of a, where to find you question and the other, but the sort of the last real meaty question, if anything is, um, you know, at the end of your piece on Jenny O'Dell, you, you guys, well, you, you elected to just sit on a bench in silence for 15 minutes with her. Mm-hmm. Um, let kind of take us to that scene. What, what was that like? What inspired that? And, uh, just kind of, what was that experience like, you know, sitting there doing nothing? Well, I will admit <clears throat> that I had the idea before we, we so the, in the article, Jenny, I meet up with Jenny O'Dell in the hills of Oakland, California, um, which is where I'm from. So it was r- really near my house and or the house I grew up in, I should say. And uh, so, yeah, we went on a hike um, for like an hour and we kind of talked and hiked at the same time, which I had never done before anyway, which was 
I don't know if this is kind of a trope in celebrity profiles in Los Angeles where you go on a hike in a Griffith Park with someone, mm-hmm. but I had never done that before. And it's, it's, it's tough to hike and interview someone at the same time, but uh, it was a challenge I was willing to do. And uh, mm-hmm. so it went all right. You know, we went for a while and kind of looked at different stuff. There's, as I said, there's in the article, there's these kind of labyrinths in, on this hike that we checked out. But yeah, so we, you know, we had talked for a while and then. I, then there was a bench, and so we sat it down at this bench, and you know we kind of talked for probably about twenty more minutes, and then, as I said, I you know I'd asked her all things I wanted to ask her, and then I said, well, you know, I I had thought of this idea before we went out, just like I've never, you know, the title of her book is How to Do Nothing, and it's about you know kind of appreciating what's around you and kind of taking it all in. So I said, you know, like do you want to just sit here and do nothing? And she was like, yeah, you know, I think that's the type of person she is. She didn't seem to think it was weird or awkward. And, you know, I thought it would be interesting to kind of circumvent this usual idea of interviews where you're just kind of pumping people you've just met for all sorts of informations and realities about their lives and thoughts and, you know, inner feelings. So, um, yeah, we sat there for a while and it was, it was cool. (laughs) Like it was, it was great. It was great to just sit there. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, we didn't put like a timer on it. We were just like, I was just like, I'm going to sit around and do this until it feels like it's time to stop. And, uh, there's like at one point, I think like a bird flew pretty close to us and I looked at her and like, I laughed and she laughed. And then I was like, okay, you know, I think we've, done enough nothing you know i mean she could have probably sat there for two hours but uh you know i i I don't know if i was quite up to that quite yet (laughs) but yeah it was it was was a great experience to just sit there with someone and not have anything to you know not force them to do anything and not force them to you know and then actually you know as we walked back at the end of the hike you know we had more good conversation i think it was a kind of a good experience to share cool very nice well well eric um that where can uh people you know I, I know you're trying to pull back a little bit uh but uh where can people find you online and uh, get uh, more familiar with your work yeah i mean if you i still have a twitter account and it's uh just my name eric ducker e-r-i-c-d-u-c-k-e-r um i post most of my stories up there uh maybe someday i'll get back to putting jokes or weird thoughts on there um and uh, if you want to read any of my articles, I just uh, set up a Contently site. So it's just my name again, ericducker.contently.com. Fantastic. Is it Contently? Is it Contently I don't know. or Contently? I, yeah, my, con- my instinct right? is Contently. Yeah. All right. Well, it's probably Contently, but I like the idea of Contently.com. Right. <laughs> okay. I love it. Well, Eric, thanks so much for carving out some time. Some great tips in there, right? That was awesome. I mean, they always are. I mean, am I going to say in this outro after that, be like, eh, that really wasn't that great. Eric sucked. That was, I'm sorry you had to listen to it. No, of course, it was awesome. And he's a great guy, a great writer. Uh, Honored to have him on the CNF and team. We've got a great bench. Go check out the backlog. It's a bit overwhelming. There's a lot of great episodes. So, um see someone you like just start just do it do it man thanks to Gauchers MFA and nonfiction and Bay Paths MFA and creative nonfiction for supporting the show 
And thanks to you, loyal listener. I make this for you, and I hope it helps you in your CNF and journey. Remember to consider leaving a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. I will personally coach up a piece of your writing of up to 2,000 words. If you do, leave a review, wait till it publishes, take a screenshot of it, send me the screenshot, and I'll reach out. And it better be a new one because I know all the ones that are published, so don't get sneaky. I'm sorry. That's very cynical and mean of me to even say that. But trust me, I will know. I think that's it. Remember, if you can do interview, see ya!